had I the heavens embroidered cloths, enwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. W. B. Yeats He it is that sitteth above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a veil, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Thou art clothed with splendour and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 40.22 and Psalm 104.1-2 Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. I am non-tenant, and I have with me my wife, Smokey. Tell us about this episode, Smokey. Today we're going to finally get into the topic and theme of the season, which is clothing, and specifically, what does clothing mean? What do you mean, what does clothing mean? I, I have a suspicion that this question might not make sense to many of our listeners, so tell us what does it mean to ask what clothing means. Well, we talked already in episode zero about how created things are not just things. There's no such thing as just a thing. Everything is symbolic. Things are physical expression of spiritual realities. And the more basic the symbol, the more universal it is, the more important and potent a symbol it tends to be. So things that are really fundamental to human experience, like light and dark, like music, like food and like clothing, we know those are so important to people. So we assume that they must point to some very important kind of spiritual reality or heavenly pattern, in which case, what is that? Right, so we talked in the introduction episode about light, for instance, and how light is an eternal spiritual reality that is expressed in created photons. Or you might say, created photons participate in this heavenly pattern of light, which is really something that exists in God himself, in the Son of God, as we learn in John 1. And it's the same with every part of reality that ancient people would have considered elemental. Light is basically fire, that's one of the the four main elements, fire is light, and that points to something beyond it. And earth and air and water, these things also point to something beyond them. But it's not just the environmental elements that are important. Man himself, as we learned, is a symbol of God. And man needs to wear clothes. Even when he doesn't need them for survival, we know that he ought to wear them. So today we want to ask why. What does it mean? What is clothing pointing to? And to answer questions of symbolism, we try to start in Genesis. If there is an answer there, that is where we should go first, because if you're asking about the meaning of created things, hopefully I don't need to explain why starting with the creation account would be helpful. And to talk about clothing, of course, we can go back even further beyond it. We can start with nakedness, because of course we didn't start out with clothes. And if you're a secular archaeologist, you don't really know when it started. You know, you can talk about the development of string that was apparently very important and, you know, um, the use of furs and so on. But we can say pretty confidently as Christians that clothing had a very definite beginning. It was not a thing. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then suddenly it was. Fig leaves to fur coats just in a matter of hours. So the common Christian perspective on this is that nakedness was good and sin corrupted it. And clothing was just kind of a necessary evil a sort of a merciful stopgap to mitigate some of the effects of sin by covering our shame and protecting these newly mortal bodies from this harsh fallen world that we were suddenly in. What do you think about that? I think that interpretation makes sense if you don't take a symbolic view of clothing. Because, as I read in the cold open, scripture depicts God himself as clothed with splendor and majesty. He covers himself with light as with a garment, which hints at 
two of the primary purposes of clothing, which apply even to God himself when he chooses to depict himself in physical terms, which is glory and covering. And if we think of clothing in this way, it cannot be a concession to sin. It must rather reflect something about the nature or the character of God himself, which is why, of course, it makes such perfect sense that humans wear clothes because humans are a symbol of God. Right, and before the fall, we know there was glory in covering, those things existed. So God, of course, had glory intrinsically, and he displayed his glory by creating the heavens, and in fact by creating everything else that was good. But the glory wasn't always on full display. You had the glories of the day, and then they were covered by the night. You had the glories of the stars, conversely, which were covered by the day. And the glory of the earth was covered by plants, and then that covering itself increased the glory of the earth. Reminds me a little bit of the scene at the end of Moana, when the island is becoming, you know, covered in the vegetation, becoming more glorious. Don't talk to me about Moana. (laughs) I like Moana. Moana is something we'll talk about another time, because it is the most powerfully insidious use of symbolism that I've ever seen. But getting back to Genesis, there is a repeated pattern of covering followed by glory. Every day the world starts covered with darkness. It says darkness was over the face of the deep in the beginning. And then the covering is removed, and God adds glory to it. So there is evening, and there is morning, and then God does something to make the creation better, more majestical, more splendor-furious, as our youngest would say. First, he creates light, which is the simplest form of glory, glory simpliciter. Then he creates the heavens, which declare his glory, as we read in Psalm 19.1. And then he makes the world a suitable habitation for man, who is his glory. And then man himself is covered in darkness by sleep. And Eve is made out of his side, just as the world is glorified after coming out of darkness each day, so Adam is glorified after coming out of sleep. And thus Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that Eve is man's glory. And once Eve is made, then there's no more glory that God adds to creation. She is the pinnacle, and all the glory that is added after this is added by mankind. And in fact, the first of that glory is recorded for us. It's a poem by Adam about Eve, because poetry is glorified speech. And Adam glorifies his glory, saying, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So at this point, why would you say man is naked? Is it because being uncovered is glorious, and if he were covered by clothes, that would hide his glory? On the contrary, the the connection between glory and covering actually works the other way. It's a paradoxical connection. It is by covering that things are made more glorious, and we've already seen this. The covering itself is glorious, and yet the covering also conceals a glory, and yet it is only by concealing that glory that it is truly preserved as glory. When I was looking this up, I found an interesting perspective by a Jewish scholar who believed that Adam and Eve were covered as well, even when they were naked. So he, he believed that their nakedness was kind of shielded in this penumbra of light, a kind of a modesty lens flare, if you will. And then when they fell into sin, this faded and revealed their nasty naked bodies underneath. What would you say to that? I would say that that is the kind of fascinating speculative nonsense that I would expect from Jewish scholars. You need to be careful reading Jewish scholars. I did find an interesting one from the 12th century, another Jewish guy whose theory was a little more disturbing. He believed that because the Garden of Eden was so well protected, that Adam and Eve were created without skin. They didn't require an epidermis until the fall. And then his perspective on how that happened was either that God just, when he made, you know, it says he clothed them in skins afterwards, either he just created skin for them and put it on their flayed selves, or, more horrifically, that there was a 
non-sentient but human-shaped creature shambling around in the garden that had been created for the purpose, which God then slew and skinned and put his skins onto Adam Eve. Coming soon to a cinema near you. Pretty Revenge much. of the man-beast. Yeah. Well, scripture does not tell us that Adam and Eve were clothed in light. In fact, the point of them being naked really suggests otherwise, because the whole idea is that they are exposed. There is no covering to mediate between them and the world, and them and each other, and most importantly, them and God, whether that covering were clothing or light. That's the whole point of them being naked. It's not that being naked is some kind of perfect state. Rather, being naked itself is a symbol that illustrates something important about their spiritual state, about their character. And this is clearer in the Hebrew text, where the couple are contrasted with the serpent. In English, this is concealed and even looks a little strange, because at the end of Genesis 2, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And then the very next verse says, Now the serpent was more shrewd than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. So it seems like there's a strange jump, but there is no jump. In Hebrew, naked is arumim, and shrewd is arum. It's a little wordplay to draw attention to the difference between the couple and the serpent. They are uncovered before him because they lack the knowledge and wisdom that he has, which he then proceeds to use against them by tempting them with it. And when God punishes him, he says, Because thou hast done this, cursed art thou above all livestock and above every beast of the field. And the word cursed here is arur. So we have the serpent starting out arum, in a position of power over the couple, who are arum mim, but he ends up arur in a position of lowest disgrace. And if you were to try to render the wordplay in English, and this will be my contribution to Old Testament studies for the rest of time, you might say that the couple are nude, the serpent is shrewd, and when he is punished, he is screwed. Beautiful. So the nakedness of the couple here is meant to draw attention to their spiritual state, not because it's an ideal physical state, but because it shows something about their spirituality, about their innocence and vulnerability. Right. Being naked is not some kind of perfect state for mankind to be in that was corrupted by the fall. Rather, the man and his wife are, as it were, infants. They have not yet learned wisdom. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here on what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents, so let me just tell you that it represents kingly wisdom, the ability to rule, and this is especially clear in 1 Kings 3, where Solomon asks for wisdom to know good from evil, and you can look that up in your own time, but the point is that nakedness was a physical expression of the couple's spiritual state, their lack of wisdom, and that therefore it would not have continued had they gained the knowledge of good and evil lawfully. They would have known they were naked, just as they did when they sinned by eating of the tree. But rather than being ashamed as they were after sinning, because they were exposed before God, they would rather have being righteous desired to be covered in the appropriate glory. Well, even at a practical level, it doesn't really make sense to think that Adam and Eve would have remained naked forever. The garden was a very protected space. You know, we, it's on a mountain, but we don't hear that they got cold or anything along those lines. But Adam and Eve would have meant to stay in the garden forever. They were meant to go out and take dominion over all the earth. And that would mean traveling in various climates and doing heavy labor and blacksmithing and lumberjacking. And, you know, you'd really want protective gear for that kind of thing. Even in tribes today where people wear very few clothes, they will wear areas of kind of tactical protective clothing as they need to. And I think we miss some of that because we have this sort of strangely magical childlike view of both the unfallen world and I think of heaven as a kind of a safe world where the laws of physics don't really apply. You know, we, we think of it as a place, almost like a video game, where you can, you know, jump off a cliff and float down nicely, or 
if you put your hands in the fire, you won't get burned. You know, people say things like, oh, it'll be great in heaven where we can eat as much cake as we like and we won't get fat. You know, that kind of thing. And that is quite a bizarre perspective, really. You know, if, if God didn't intend for the physical laws, the laws of physics, to affect humans consistently, why would he bother making them? That wouldn't really be life. That would just be kind of play acting. It'd be like teaching people to swim, but giving them floaties to wear forever. It's not really meaningful. We know that pain existed before the fall, because God told Eve he would greatly increase her pain in childbearing, not that it would be created from nothing. And there's really no reason to think that Adam and Eve wouldn't have gotten blisters and learned to avoid them by crafting shoes, or come in contact with a spark and flinched from it and decided to make a sturdy leather apron for metalworking. That's not a fallen world, or a sinful world, that's just the world working as it's meant to work, so that humans can kind of come into the fullness of wisdom and experience and skill that actually means something. So, practically speaking, I would say clothing was inevitable. Those are good pragmatic considerations that line up with the garments of skin. If you've listened to Jonathan Pajot, you know that one of the key ideas with the garments of skin is that it's a covering against vulnerability. It's adding something of the world to us to extend our power. So basically, it's technology. Garments of skin are a kind of protection. But that's not the main meaning of clothing itself. Clothing is more theological, and as I said, regardless of whether you would have needed protection, the couple would certainly have desired eventually to be covered by the appropriate glory that was fitting for their station as images of God. And this connects with the artistic impulse that humans have, which I think you, you can't really imagine that this is a result of the fall, th this drive that we have to create and to adorn. That is surely a reflection of God himself, who adorns his tabernacle and his meadows. Jesus speaks of how even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as the lilies of the meadow. And we know that sexuality also existed before the fall, so why not think that Eve would have accentuated her beauty with the flattering effects of draped cloth, the glory of the covering for the delight of her husband, and just for the joy of the artistry of it? C.S. Lewis has some very great insights into symbolism, especially in books like Paralandra, but this is one of the things that I think he gets obviously wrong, as he has the temptation of the Paralandrian Eve involving being covered in clothing, and somehow this is meant to diminish her beauty, even though it is a temptation to her. It's mm. a, a very confusing scene, in my view. Yes, he finds it obviously quite sort of obscene to think that she would want to wear clothes. Right, I think Lewis... Although he had very good instincts, he hadn't reflected sufficiently on the way that scripture itself depicts clothing, especially the way that scripture depicts God as clothed. And he hadn't reflected on the, the connection between man as the image of God and God wearing clothing. I had a recent experience that changed the way I view clothing as glory. I had the privilege of walking with a dear friend through the stillbirth of her baby, baby Gideon. He was born at 26 weeks, and that's an age when even preemie baby clothes don't fit. And it was surprisingly hard to find proper clothes to put him in. Uh, my friend really didn't want to put him in one of those little pouches that the hospital provided. Or they had these little sort of white christening gown type angel dress thingies, but she didn't want him to look like an angel. She wanted him to look like a, a proper baby. The hospital also offered these little cloaks that are knitted by volunteers because they're quite easy to put on a really tiny baby. But um, we, we tried that and he just looked silly. He had this sort of little Dracula cape on and we were like, no, no, this isn't right. And the midwife was like, yeah, all these sweet old ladies keep knitting these and nobody ever wants them because they just, they look kind of weird. And it was really important to my friend that he was dressed like, as it were, a, a real baby, a, a proper baby. And so she had gone, fortunately, online and she found some doll clothes, just a little hat and onesie, and they fitted him perfectly. And there was such a difference when he was all snuggled up in his little outfit, not sort of 
lying, being medically photographed and all that kind of slightly barbaric and inhumane stuff that goes along with the, the medical system. I don't, I don't know how to put it, but he, I keep wanting to say real baby. Of course he was a real baby, you know, clothed or not, but it just, it added something indefinable, but really important. It made him sort of, it personalized him, it humanized him. It made us more able to see the newborn that he should have been. And I think it made it a lot more special when his brothers and sisters came and were giving him snuggles and he had his little hat and his little onesie. It was hard to describe, but it was impossible to miss. We all sort of felt how significant that was. And I think it is a fascinating thing about humans when you think about it, is that we clothe our dead. Um, and as far as I can tell, like, we've always clothed our dead. You don't need to. I mean, you can bury or cremate somebody naked, but it's not like they care. And in pre-industrial times, you know, cloth was unbelievably valuable. We can't really conceive today of just how valuable it was. The labour that it took to grow and harvest and process and wash and spin and weave and sew... Pre-industrial people apparently spent about as many hours per year making clothing as they did making food, so we can't imagine just how precious that cloth was. And even in those conditions where it would be perfectly understandable to kind of strip the dead and, you know, reuse the clothing, we don't, we didn't. Sometimes we buried them in shrouds or bandages, and sometimes in funeral gowns. Nowadays it's mostly in our real clothes. But it's always been in this precious cloth. And this is almost universal. I tried to find counterexamples of cultures who buried their dead naked, and the only concrete one I could come up with was Tibetan sky burial, which is the one where they chop you up and leave you for the eagles. By the way, do not recommend looking that up on Wikipedia, because they have photographs and they are not discreet. But again, it comes back to this humanising thing. You know, we don't want to think of our dear loved ones as just lumps of flesh. We want to think of them as people. And if we put them in their favourite dress with their wedding ring on, it helps us to do that. So what is humanising? What does it mean to humanize, I think this is something worth reflecting on. The fact that clothing humanizes literally means to make someone more human. And what are humans? We know that we've seen that. We've labored this point that they are the image of God. So to humanize someone really means to reveal or to amplify the image of God in them. And another word for that is glorifying them. And that's not something that you can get from a clear-cut exegetical argument. You can't take, you know, this verse and this verse and put them into a syllogism and say, therefore, clothing glorifies us or clothing makes us more human. But it's a basic intuition that's built into our natures that we can easily grasp just by looking at what clothing does. And if we think of clothing as just a covering, like just there to cover our nakedness and our, our shame and our disgrace, what do we even do with passages where God himself is portrayed in a shining robe and a crown? You know, why does God need a robe? If he took human form, that form would be perfect and unfallen, and there wouldn't be any shame in it. So he could appear naked like a, a Greek god, you know, but he doesn't. He wears a robe, and the language clearly shows that the robe is a revelation of his majesty and his glory. The unfallen angels aren't naked either. They also wear white robes, and in heaven, the saints are described as wearing white robes. There are a lot of white robes going on, in fact. It's actually extremely obvious in scripture that the trajectory of human history is toward a glorious clothed state. We're not going to revert back to Edenic nakedness. We're going to be clothed in glory. So clothing cannot be a purely temporary stopgap making the best of a bad situation thing. Clothing does cover our shame, that is true, but that's more like a byproduct of the fall, and primarily what clothing does is glorify us. I think this is an important point as well, because in Christian circles, when you talk about clothing... It's almost like the only thing people think of is the, the modesty issue, right? The, the, the lust issue, the, the covering up. 
And there is more to covering shame even than just the question of lust. So, of course, you have the shame of spying on the nakedness of someone attractive, like, you know, Bathsheba, because it leaves her vulnerable. And there is the shame of revealing your body in that way to make men vulnerable to lusting. But there's also a different kind of shame and vulnerability in seeing someone who isn't attractive naked due to, you know, age or disease. If you've seen Schindler's List, there's this, a powerful scene with Jewish prisoners lined up naked. And they're skinny and some of them are old. You know, they're not alluring in any way. But they're vulnerable instead to ridicule. And this is a great example of how clothing people humanises them. Conversely, you know, stripping them naked dehumanises them. And this has been a feature of a lot of societies, actually. The higher up the social ladder you were, the more clothes and the fancier clothes you could possess. So in ancient Egypt, slaves were often completely naked. And in ancient Benin, uh, men used to be granted clothing only by the king. And when men got married, they would give their wives their first dress as a kind of a status symbol. And you even see this same pattern in fiction, actually. In Star Trek, you've got the Ferengi women who aren't allowed clothes because that might give them too much freedom. They're sort of the oppressed sex. And, you know, or in Harry Potter, uh, the house elves aren't allowed to have real clothes because giving them clothes literally <laughs> sets them free. It gives them the status of humans. So we have these two elements of glory and covering, and they're both intention, especially because in a fallen world there is more to cover that should not be there. There is shame because of sin that makes the need for clothing more acute somehow. We have to cover the nakedness of our flesh. But on the other hand, covering also reveals our glory. Yeah, I mean, most of us today look better clothed just because we're all flabby and pimply and gross, right? But even if you're in a society of, of bronzed, fit Amazons, there is glory in a beautiful dress or a headdress or a cloak. So kings and queens, when they wanted to display their glory to the world, they could have commissioned portraits in the nude, because, you know, they could have made the painter paint them looking absolutely fantastic, done a kind of a Leslie Nope type situation. But they didn't. They had their portraits done in their most gorgeous, awe-inspiring clothes, with just yards and yards of cloth and sleeves and skirts and furs and trimmings. I think the Tudors are probably the best at this, because the Tudors were just extremely good at uh, self-promotion. They knew how to make themselves into icons. And if you look at anything with uh, King Henry or, or Queen Elizabeth wearing just pounds and pounds of fabric, they shaped and decorated themselves deliberately to magnify the physical space they took up. They weren't sort of going to be... They weren't going for attractive. They weren't going for sensual. They were going for impressive. They wanted to have this big visual impact. And the covering was just all about glory. It was about, you know, wealth and artistry and trendsetting and having access to these exotic materials and the ability to have things very carefully laundered, which was a huge deal at the time, and symbolic colours and motifs. You know, they would definitely not have looked more glorious naked, especially Henry VIII. What else does clothing do? Well, clothing, of course, can enhance natural beauty. You know, it can sort of lift and shape your breasts, show off your calves, emphasise your height or your slimness or your curviness. And this is what God himself tells Moses when he's instructing him on creating the priestly garments in Exodus and Leviticus. The priests did need to wear specific underwear, linen breeches, to cover the flesh of their nakedness before God. So this shows how the effects of the fall are in play with clothing needing to be uh, used to conceal our shame. But that was only the undergarments. When it came to the whole priestly attire... God says in Exodus 28.40 and in Exodus 28.2, Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them sashes, and head tires shalt thou make for them, for glory and for beauty. 
And interesting side note, the word coat here that is used of the priest's garments is not a common term for a tunic. It's actually reserved for the priest's coats in Exodus and Leviticus, which is very intriguing because it's the same word that is used in Genesis 3.21. Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife coats of skins and clothed them. And it's also the same word used of Joseph's unique coat in Genesis 37. So while I think that Jonathan Pajot is onto something with the garments of skin representing technology, I also think he's missing a bigger picture, which is more along the lines of Adam and Eve being clothed in the glory appropriate to them after gaining the knowledge of good and evil, which because of the fall is a glory of death. And that's just a side note. I haven't really thought about this very much. I just noticed the connection when I was putting these notes together. Well, another thing clothing shows up is wealth. And this always seems faintly wrong. It seems like we should be kind of above that and it's a bit materialistic. But it is in the Bible, um, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 10, 13, I clothed thee also with broidered work or broidered cloth and shod thee with seal skin or fine leather, depending on how you want to translate that. And I girded thee about with fine linen and covered thee with silk and I decked thee with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain on thy neck and I put a ring on thy nose and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceedingly beautiful, and thou didst prosper unto royal estate. Right, so he's not clothing her in things that are sort of practical and simple. He is clothing her in these deliberately, almost ostentatiously... In the heavens embroidered cloth. In the heavens embroidered cloth, exactly. And I think we do inherently kind of understand it. Um, I once saw a, a book about sort of fashion advice called how to look expensive. Yeah, that's what we want, isn't it? And throughout history, of course, this has meant different things. You know, it could be expensive dyes. Nowadays, colour isn't such a signifier of wealth because you can create pretty much any artificial dye. But for several hundred years, if you were wearing black, that was a symbol of being very rich. Things like the volume and the fineness of the cloth you're wearing, the level of detail with the embroidery and maybe jewellery you've got on it, the brand name or the designer, those all signify wealth. And not just a kind of a personal wealth, but a kind of a cultural wealth. It glorifies the entire society because you can say, you know, my country has the best dyers and weavers, or our sheep have the finest wool, or we are such a dominant international player that we have this thriving trade with, you know, China, and so we have access to silk, for example. Even today, not every colour can be replicated. Tyrian purple is still made the traditional way and is crazy expensive. That is true. And it's also interesting looking at the differences between cultures in the metals that they choose. So the Washington Monument is capped with aluminium. Aluminium, as they say in America. Because that was the most expensive metal at the time. Nice. It's more expensive than gold. It's like Titanic had uh, linoleum in the main dining room hall because that was like... Lino floors. Yep. And it's the same, like, that That kind of takes us to jewellery, yes. which obviously, it's not exactly clothing, but it goes along with clothing. It's an adornment. And you, you add, for example, you might, in the 17th, 18th century, you might have added aluminium to kings, but normally you would add gold to kings. Why would you add gold? Well, that's for the same reason you anoint them with oil, isn't it? Gold and oil are both light. They make you shine, so they will accentuate your glory. Right, their glory accentuators. Gold is solid light. Oil is liquid light. It makes the face shine, Psalm 104.15 tells us. And obviously, shining is something which is associated with glory. So it's fitting to add these things to glorious people because you're essentially extending their presence. You are building out their presence from their own body by adding to them. And just as you 
add to the space they take up with fine heavy clothing and so forth you also add to the appearance of them with these glorious shiny things the covering extends our glory by adding to us and i think it's quite hard for a modern person to really appreciate this because so few of us have done anything like wearing a cloak or even wearing an impressive flowing coat most of us haven't even done that being a giant nerd i've actually done both when i was just out of high school well in high school in fact i used to wear a trench coat and just out of high school i made myself a long cloak and i felt amazing everyone else thought i was completely insane but i felt awesome it was like this magnificent flowing billowing feeling where the wind would catch it and it would greatly increase my presence and i had enough arrogance at least enough basic alpha frame to appreciate this and to feel like i deserved it even though at the time i'm sure i didn't and it made a huge difference to the way that i felt about myself adding great robes is glorious because it extends the body to take up more space in ways that really do feel impressive it's hard to describe without experiencing it but you absolutely feel more majestical and worthy of honor when you're wearing a big cape or cloak think also about batman and superman batman fascinated me as a child i used to read a lot of batman comics and the thing that most intrigued me about those comics was the way that they drew his cloak it was almost like this living thing that was part of him that could take up an entire page and would be grossly exaggerated in terms of the physical space that it took up and the way that it moved and the amount of fabric involved and it hugely increased batman's glory i think there is a genuine phenomenon there and that clothing that requires skill and panache to wear does have more glory and dignity associated with it so for most of history, until surprisingly recent times, actually, clothing was draped, right? So it was basically made in either rectangles or tubes. If you knitted it in the round, it could be tubes. And the way it fit is that you would have to know how to put it on. You'd arrange pleats and folds and you'd, you know, pin it here and cinch it in here and so on. And therefore it fit you perfectly, which is lovely. But you had to know how to do it. It wasn't something you could just, it's not like slapping on a t-shirt and cargo pants, which kind of is self-explanatory. And once they're on, you also have to carry yourself in a certain way. And it's something that not everyone can pull off. It's much harder to gracefully move around in something like a Roman toga or a Maasai blanket or a, a sari or a, a Scottish great kilt, which is surprisingly huge, complex, unwieldy beasts if you don't know what to do with them. It really affects the way you move, because if you do it wrong, you'll just kind of get tangled up in it and have things, you know, flapping around your knees and falling off you and so on. And because it is this learned skill it demonstrates a mastery of that particular culture. And there's a kind of a gravitas in that that people really respond to. You see it, I think, in the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, the hobbits, yeah, they wear their cloaks, that's fine. But, you know, Aragorn, he wears his cloak. He really sort of knows how to manipulate it and how to work in it efficiently without getting tangled up and looking like an idiot. It greatly increases his sense of presence. Yeah, and same with um, Gandalf and his robes. You know, people say, oh, you know, robes, you know, men wearing dresses, very ha-ha-ha. But no one would think that Gandalf no was effeminate. No one thinks that about it, Ian McKellen. No. <laughs> Ian McKellen ironically. can wear a robe. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Is ironic. You know, he can he can climb a mountain in that and he can wield a staff at that. And, and the same with Batman. Batman exactly. is not going to be fighting in a cape. That is absurd. That is the most ridiculous thing to wear if you were actually doing any kind of close combat, sport, martial art, anything. Yes. And yet he wears this cloak. The paradox, though, is that if you have too much covering you actually end up hiding your glory so if you think of women in islamic countries who are swathed head to foot in cloth so that you can't even distinguish them as properly woman shaped they are not accentuating their glory by covering they're actually denying that glory altogether 
I think there's sort of a an analogy here with snowfall. You know, if you have a landscape, you can beautify the landscape by covering it with snow, right? The snow conceals all the dirt and the junk, and it smooths out the rough edges, and it generally makes the whole place look all tranquil and magical and, you know, like you'd put in a Christmas card. But if you've got 10 feet of snow and you can't see anything, it's no longer a glorified landscape. It's just this kind of blob of amorphous whiteness. And you don't put that in a Christmas card because there's just nothing to see. It's not as glorious. So there's a ditch on each side. If we cover too much, we deface our glory by hiding it, by essentially denying its existence. But if we don't cover enough, we deface our glory by exposing it, by showing what ought not to be shown. There is a part of us that is glorious specifically because it is secret and unmentionable. The glory of our hidden parts is precisely in their hiddenness, in that they are not for everyone, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, saying, Those parts of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly parts have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly parts have no need. But God tempered the body together, giving more abundant honor to that part which lacked. And yet, obviously, in the modern Western world, the more prevalent issue would be undercovering rather than overcovering. If you think about our current clothing trends, I think you can say, as a bit of a generalization, that they de emphasize glory for men and they de emphasize covering for women. Women are told they'll be more glorious if they don't cover up. And men are told that the most appropriate male attire is this deliberately, conspicuously inglorious clothing. And this wasn't the historical norm at all. We know it wasn't the biblical norm, if you look at the way, you know, Solomon is described and so on. And it's actually quite aberrant, and we're going to cover that in a later episode. Well, this episode has been quite theology-heavy, so why don't you give us a taste? What do you mean that modern clothing de-emphasizes glory for men and covering for women? And... How does that compare with history? This seems like a pretty important practical application to bring out from the theology that we've covered, because if clothing is supposed to humanize us, or if it can dehumanize us, make us more like God or less like God, then what you're really saying is that modern clothing actually dehumanizes us. It defaces the image of God, both in men and women. So let's camp there for a moment. How does it do that? Well, I mean, I think you can overstate this, but one thing that struck me when I was doing research for this is that clothing today just doesn't fit. So historically, for a long time, like I said, you had draped clothing, and that fit you sort of by default, because you just sort of pinned and draped it to your body and and cinched it in and so on until it it had to fit. And then when pieced clothing came along, that was surprisingly late in the game. That was like around about the 1400s when that started to happen. Um, Because, of course, that's more wasteful. If you're cutting bits like pattern pieces out of a big piece of cloth, you've got leftovers, you've got scraps, and because cloth is so valuable, that's kind of a big deal. But even when that happened, clothing was tailor-made for the individual. There was no mass production. So if you're making a pair of hose for Bob... You used Bob's exact measurements, and they fit Bob perfectly. And also clothing around that time was fastened in such a way that it was quite adjustable, partly because women tended to get pregnant and breastfeed and change body shapes, you know, and you needed to compensate for that because you can't be making a new outfit every year. So clothing fit. Now, as anybody knows who's worn properly tailored clothing, it is just night and day in terms of comfort and looks. There's a reason that Hollywood stars look amazing when they're snapped by paparazzi wearing plain T-shirts and jeans, all right? The reason they look good is that somebody tailored them to fit their exact measurements. They might have bought them on the high street, but then someone went and just adjusted them and made them the exact shape of Cameron Diaz or whatever. And it makes such a difference. Things hang right and you don't get, you know, gapy holes between the buttons or sleeves that are too short or a jacket that you can't quite lift your arms in. And for most of history, that was normal. And when mass-produced outerwear clothing first became a thing, it was actually only made for two demographics. first one was sailors, who were kind of the lowest of the low. And sailors could only buy one size of pre-made clothes. They bought their uniforms at slop shops. 
and then they'd have to alter them themselves on board the ship, which honestly can't have been that much more handy than just making them from scratch. But that's what they did for uniforms. And then in terms of clothing that came in sizes, the first mass-produced clothes that had, you know, sort of standard sizes was actually made for slaves in the American South. And obviously this is dehumanizing. You know, it's like we have to clothe our slaves, obviously, but we don't really care how they look or how well their clothes fit or, you know, how good they feel in them. We just want to minimize the labor that's spent on the labor force itself. So making them individual clothes when you didn't have to would be sort of like cooking slaves gourmet individual meals if you didn't have to. You wanted to get it done as, as cheaply and efficiently as possible. So for a while, it was really only slaves who were wearing these ready-made off-the-rack clothes. And I think it's so interesting that if you fast forward to today, that's normal. That's how we dress. We just kind of accepted at some point as a society that clothes would become less flattering and less comfortable for the sake of efficiency and cheapness and variety. And now instead of having one dress that fits us perfectly, we can have you know, far more, to be fair, we can have, you know, 20, but are all, they're all just a bit rubbish, and they all make us feel bad about our body being the wrong shape, because, you know, standard pattern sizing is based on average measurements, and that doesn't actually correspond to any one individual in the population at all, let alone most of us. So we have accepted a role a little bit like that which was forced on American slaves of being cogs in the machine. And I think that's pretty significant. And thus, in the words of the inimitable Scar, we are crude and unspeakably plain. So there is no mass-produced or pre-made clothing in the post-millennial future once the gospel has worked through the whole lump and our culture is fully shaped by God's word. Well, I'm not sure if i go that far, but I think that we would probably have a very different attitude towards clothing. I think we will ideally learn one day to have a greater respect for our resources and a greater appreciation of aesthetic beauty. And, you know, if you have a few really beautiful clothes, you don't need dozens and dozens of them. You know, we have this kind of weird society now in which you'll take a chance on clothes you almost know you don't like. You know, something will be on sale, you know, it'll be like two for twenty dollars or whatever, and so you'll buy this kind of ridiculous high low shirt with cut out shoulders and it's kind of a funky textured fabric that you know is gonna start smelling bad in summer and it doesn't really go with anything you own and the colour's not really your colour, but you just kind of you may as well give it a shot. And you know, that's that's quite weird. I don't think we should be doing that. I think we should be thinking I want to wear this dress for as long as I can, several years. Let's make it look as beautiful as we can. So clothing is given to us for a glory and a covering, but is that all it is for? In the next episode, we're going to greatly expand on this basic idea, and we're going to talk about how clothing communicates. Clothing really is a language, because symbolism is a language. Matthew Pedro would call it the language of creation. Clothing, too, is a language, and one of the things that it communicates, obviously, is glory, as we've talked about, but it also says a lot else. In the meantime, if you are a paid subscriber, look out for our next Talkie Nonsense episode, which Smokey informs me is going to be on whether a woman should take her husband's last name if it is embarrassing. Give me an example, Smokey, go. If your name is Luna Lovegood and you fall in love with a Mr. Tick, must you become Mrs. Lunatic? An exciting time will be had by all. If you're not a paid member and you want to listen to that, you can sign up at truemagic.nz. You'll get early access also to True Magic episodes and, of course, the warm glow of re-enchanting the world just that little bit harder than them freeloading listeners. Just go to truemagic.nz, enter your email address, and follow your nose. Until next time, continue to present your physical body to God as a living sacrifice of spiritual service. This has been True Magic.